Uh, Acts chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter 15. There are notes on the back with the outline. They are full. I haven't left any blanks in them. And today's uh, sermon is really, I, to, I don't want anybody to be distracted by did I miss a blank or not miss a blank or what was it? It's, uh, this is of utmost importance today. So um, you have the outline. You can just follow along. You can fill in as you... Here in Acts chapter 15, we are halfway through the book of Acts. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And so um, here we are at, at halfway as we make our way through it. It, it also marks, as we're halfway, it marks a, a significant shift in the way the book of Acts proceeds. So this is the last time we're going to see the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. Um, the shift moves us now almost permanently, not entirely, but the focus really shifts from being near Jerusalem to, to the world. So the, the, the shift and the focus of Acts really moves from here in, in the middle as uh, we move to see the gospel into to the world. Uh, say so this is, as we will read in just a moment, uh, Luke's last record of Peter in the Gospels and what he does, and it is typical of Peter. It is bold. It is him for the truth of the Gospel, which is where we so often find Peter on the side of fighting for the Gospel. Now, as I said in the introduction just a, a moment ago, uh, Today is perhaps one of the most important messages I will ever preach. Uh, it is significant in the content and what is happening here in Acts chapter 15. There are a few events in the, the book of Acts that are weighty, that carry a huge weight, places where Luke has put particular emphasis on them. We've seen a number of those already. Uh, Stephen's sermon and his uh, carry a great deal of weight through the book of Acts, and we see that by the amount of space he gave to it and what he recorded of it. The next one along the way, which really carries some significant weight and burden in the book of Acts, is Paul's conversion. And we saw that. Again, he gives us a significant portion of his letter to cover that. And then there is this passage, Acts chapter 15. In fact, one Bible commentator I read calls this passage an epic event of the book of Acts. Not just a big event, not just an important event, but this is epic. And it is in every sense of the term. This is an epic moment in Acts and in Christian history. It is hard to put words to how important this passage is. I am going to fumble my way through and try and do my very best to do that today in, in one way, but it is important. It is what is described often here as the Council of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Council, and it is an important event. Through the centuries, you know, from the time of Jesus to now, through the centuries, there have been a number of councils throughout where Christians and people have, have gathered in meetings to discuss, to debate, and to clarify what is essential or important Christian doctrine. We've seen those all through history. And sometimes Christians to clarify what are the specifics of a doctrine or a belief that we need to have, what fits within orthodoxy and what is outside of orthodoxy. 
Sometimes it's between Christians and false teachers or non-believers, essentially. And the, the, the battle or the debate or the fight is to say, no, what you are saying is outside of Christianity and you are a heretic. And the church will write down what it means by that and why that person is classified as a heretic. Some of our greatest creeds, Christian creeds, are a result of these things. The Nicene Creed is a result of one of these councils and one of these debates over the nature and deity of Jesus Christ. The Apostles' Creed, perhaps the most well-known of the ancient creeds, is the same. comes out of or is born out of a defense of the Christian faith. And so we write down these creeds to say, this is what is what the Bible teaches. Here is perhaps the first known council, and it is of utmost importance. We are reminded of the glory of our salvation and the absolute importance of defending the gospel and the truth of the gospel. So let's read together. We're going to read uh, Acts chapter 15 and just the first well, half, really, up to verse 21, and then uh, learn from there. So it says in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. When all the multitude, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James, and this is uh, James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return 
and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those who, among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word we pray for power through it. Your spirit would encourage us, challenge us, and strengthen us to be proclaimers and protectors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we'll look at the conflict of what happens, how it arises, and uh, the, the council meeting around it. Next week we'll look at more of the, the consequences or the outcome of this so let's look at the beginning here of Acts 15 and, and think our way through it. And as we look at this and what takes place, as the, the first point clearly says there at the top, yes, this is a big deal. You know, when I, I said at the beginning that this is important and perhaps the most important message I will ever preach, um, I don't mean to sound um, like I'm exaggerating. This is a big deal. What takes place here is of utmost importance. It is, by no stretch of the truth, a matter of life and death. The question that arises here, the question that we're really looking down to, if we boil it down and, and put it in a simple phrase, it is this. Is Jesus enough? That's what's being discussed here at this council and through the... Is Jesus enough? enough. It begins by showing us that some, some Jews from Judea come up to uh, make their way up to Antioch and start teaching and infiltrating into the church there in Antioch. And it says, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. And this is what they were saying. And this is where the whole thing starts. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's where it all starts. Unless you keep the law, unless you become like a Jew, you cannot be saved. Not it's hard to or not you need to do other things. You cannot be saved. This is perhaps the longest running controversy in Christianity. We see it beginning here already. What is required to be saved? What is required for salvation? That makes this event an extremely important moment, an extremely important time. When Jesus said in John chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, was Jesus lying? Was he lying and saying, there, it is not just me, there is some other way, there is more? Is it true to say that because Jesus even said and the apostles say that salvation is of the Jews or it comes from the Jews, does that mean that we must become Jewish, that we must become proselytes 
to know the truth of salvation. You will say, well, this is, this is back then and this is then, but this, this is still an important truth today. The issue is still at stake today. The Reformation in the 1500s had this very thing at its core. What is necessary to be saved? Is Jesus enough? This is where we, we sang a song a moment ago, In Christ Alone, which comes from one of the great uh, cries of the Reformation. Solus Christus, Christ alone. This was at the heart of that battle. Even today, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that salvation is through Jesus and baptism and the church and other things. They are still teaching Jesus plus something else. There are aspects of charismatic Christian uh, movement which believe that salvation comes by Jesus plus some baptism in the spirit and speaking in tongues. That if you don't have some manifestation of the spirit, then you are not a believer. In our own city and in our own country, which believe that salvation is by Jesus and baptism. That without baptism, there is no salvation. These are all beliefs which are alive and well today. Even if we, we connect what we're talking about in, in modern times to what is here, there is a, a movement which gains some prominence and still has some called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Gained some influence among many. As I looked at their website, the, 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 their description of who they say they are begins with this. Do you feel something missing in your Christian life? Let us show you the next level. Anytime you read those statements, you know something is wrong. Something is not right when you hear those statements. What is it that they believe is right? What is their way? What is this Hebrew roots movement telling us? It's telling us that you are required to follow Jewish laws and practices to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. That Christians have to keep the Passover. That Christians have to keep the law. And if we don't, then we don't know true salvation. These are all things not stuck in Bible times. These are all things that are around us right now. People and religions and movements which are telling us that salvation is Jesus plus something else. Thousands upon thousands of people, even people we know, are believing that. Jesus plus something. This is an issue that is still at stake. It is still current. Because the question then comes, if Jesus is not enough, then what is? If Jesus is not enough, what is enough? In Acts chapter 16, the, uh, the Philippian jailer says to Paul and his companions, what must I do to be saved? Now, Paul answers him immediately in verse 31 of Acts chapter 16, and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is Paul lying? Is he keeping something out of there that should be? Should he have said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized, or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and join the church, or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and pay penance? Should he have added these? Is there more to it? 
The Jews of Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 answer that question, yes, there is more. There is more than just Jesus. And that, unfortunately, is how many people think of salvation today. Even people who aren't calling themselves Christians. How many people do we talk to, perhaps less so today than there were maybe 10 or 15 years ago, who believe that any type of salvation is a balance of how well we do in this life. The works that we do, whether we do good works. This is what we call, and maybe it's a term you're familiar with or new, this, this is what we call legalism that there is something we must do we must keep the law or we must do something something other than jesus christ but legalism is more deceptive than just that so in verse one we see jews going to antioch and they're saying unless you keep the law you cannot be saved but legalism comes in many forms and many ways. In verse 5, we see a different set of people challenging this. In verse 5, it says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Right. So now we're not talking about the Jews in verse 1 who are Jews and who are saying you, you have to be a Jew. They're, they're clearly not believers. Now we're talking about a group of Jews who are part of the church. They are believers. Their Pharisee belief is fine. It, it fits. They believe in the afterlife. They believe in, in these things, but they have believed Jesus is Savior. So it says, these Pharisees who believe rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So they're saying, if we want these, these Gentiles, if we want these people outside of Judaism to be saved, it is necessary that they keep the law. These Jews are saved, but they are still bound by the law, believing that salvation requires I keep the law. We hear this type of legalism in phrases like this. Good Christians don't smoke or gamble. Ties and dresses. Good Christians fill in the blank. It could be a thousand things. It is a thousand things. What is it that good Christians are supposed to do? That's how we hear this type of legalism. But where does it end? Where does it end? Do I ever find assurance of salvation? Do I ever know acceptance by God? What do I have to do? How much do I have to do before it counts? Where is the line where I pass over acceptance and find my place with God? Where is the line? If Jesus is not enough, then what is? What is enough? It's worth fighting for. This is an issue that is worth fighting for. Paul says there, it says in verse 2, therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. That is, it's no small matter. This is not a little issue. This is not something we can look over. Isn't there? Or kind of just let it be. This is not a small matter 
This is of utmost importance. People all around us believe that salvation is Jesus plus something. So Paul and Barnabas go hard. They fight. And we're going to see in a moment, they fight hard. This is no small little discussion. This is not sitting around a table with coffee, having a friendly discussion. This is hard words. This is not easily done. So much is at stake. Why is it worth fighting for? Why does it matter? What is really at stake here if salvation becomes Jesus plus something else? Because what is at stake is the work of Christ. What is at stake is what Jesus did on the cross. Why did he die? If his death and resurrection didn't accomplish full salvation, what did it do? If his death and resurrection didn't accomplish full salvation, why did he do it? What is the point? Was it enough? How is it not enough? You see, this question goes to the very heart of our salvation. Do we need something more than Jesus to be saved? This means that if we don't answer this question correctly, people's eternal lives are at stake. So when I said a moment ago that this is a matter of life and death, that is exactly what this is, a matter of life and death. How do we attain salvation? How much of the law do I need to keep to find satisfaction with God? The James that we read about here, who is in leading the church at Jerusalem, who is part of this council and speaks, he says in his letter in James chapter 2 and verse 10, speaking about how the law plays a part in us. And he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So as far as God sees it, you can live your whole entire life absolutely perfectly. Make one mistake, make one sin even a little white lie. And as far as God is concerned, you might as well have broken the whole lot. One sin makes you guilty of the lot. So where is the line? If Jesus is not enough, what is? We must not yield in this debate. Galatians chapter 2 read for you at uh, the beginning of Galatians chapter 2. It goes uh, on a fair bit through it, but Paul and Barnabas know this must get settled. So they make their way to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles because they're, they're there. They are the, the ones who, who are, are there to guide and to direct in what is truth. So they make their way to the apostles to talk through this, this issue, to get it settled. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, we have uh, something which sounds very similar. It may be that Paul is writing here about this event. It may be that this is an event which is a little bit earlier in... We're, we're not sure if it's this moment or another moment. Nevertheless, 
The issues are the same. The meeting is the, the, the same at the core. And we find some very important things here. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses for you to put it in its context. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. So in Galatians or Acts 15, when it says Paul and Barnabas and others, that may very well have been Titus as well. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever that were, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, but he worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, one, one more verse, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be bland. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when he of the circumcision, so important was this to Paul in reference to what the gospel was and was not and what it included and did not, when he saw even Peter in this, he argued with them. He fought with the Apostle Peter over this very issue. Peter knew he was wrong. He would come back. The debate is hot, and Paul would not drop it. It's divisive. It's seductive. If you continue reading on through Galatians chapter 2, you find that even Barnabas is seduced at one point into this division which comes along. Peter believed that, the Jew, that Jesus was the only way of salvation. There is no doubt about that. Yet in this circumstance, he was giving place to these Judaizers. So these people would come in who with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles needed to keep the law. And when they came in, Peter felt self-conscious and troubled by it. So he left the Gentiles, and he would go separate himself over with the Jews, in a sense, giving cover to these people who said that you needed to keep the law. Paul says, what are you doing? You're giving cover to these people. 
They are the problem, and you're making it as if that it's okay. That it's okay to separate from the Gentiles because with these Jews here, it is not right. He was to be blamed, and Peter recognized that he was at fault. There is no place for this in Christianity. No place. This is worth fighting for. We must not yield. We must not yield. Our Roman Catholic friends, whoever it may be, they may be nice, but we cannot let them think that Jesus plus something else is what you need for salvation. We cannot let that happen. We cannot let them think it's okay. It is devilish to let people believe that salvation comes by anything other than Jesus. And this is my next point, the last, which is simply this. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. By grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. God does not require the law. It is the gospel that saves Verse 7 of our text in Acts 15 says, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter says that's how they heard it. That's how they got saved. They heard the word of the gospel and believe Peter's last stand, as we see it in Acts, is a good one. He is fighting for the truth of the gospel. We see now why it was so important in Acts chapter 10 that it was Peter who went to Cornelius and not somebody else. Because that's the exact thing that Peter is using here to prove that Jesus alone saves, not Jesus and the law, not Jesus and something else. He gets up and he says, now you see why God sent me to Cornelius. The gospel didn't first go to the Jews because of Paul. I, Peter, the apostle, was chosen by God to give the gospel to the Gentiles. And they believed the gospel just like we believed the gospel. There was no difference It's Peter who says in Acts chapter 4, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name among men under heaven given by which we must be saved. Salvation isn't about what we do. It is only about what Jesus has done. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Lest you think that this is just about the law, that it's just about keeping the law and that the law is fine, but we still need to do good works because there are people around who think that's, that is, well, we don't have to do the law, but we need to do good things. Paul says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness. So not by doing anything that you think is good, not by doing any right works, not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Nothing you do earns favor with God. Believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins. Receive the free gift of salvation. It is only that, that Jesus died for sins, was buried and rose again three days later to ascend into heaven. You don't need to do anything else, but believe that. Ephesians 2, verse 8 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The gospel saves. The gospel reconciles. Verse 8 of Acts 15 says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them. To those who believe, the Spirit was given. The Spirit went to the Gentiles, just like the Spirit went to the Jews. God now lives within all who believe. There is no more separation from him. We are united, reconciled with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment, no punishment. I'm the object of his love. I am part of his family. There is no class system in Christianity. But he also reconciles us to others. As we are reconciled to God, are reconciled to Gentiles, we all become the family of God. It does not matter. What God does for them, he does for all. This is the words of Ephesians 4. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism in whom we all are. The gospel saves, the gospel reconciles, and the gospel purifies. And made no distinction between us and them, it says in verse 9, purifying their hearts by faith. The gospel is salvation because my sins are forgiven. This is the message that is constantly preached through the book of Acts. Therefore, let it be known to you, he says in Acts 13, Brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We read Titus 3, 5 a moment ago, which talks about the washing of regeneration, the cleansing us, which kind of pictures what was said in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We don't earn forgiveness, we receive it. It is freely given when we believe Jesus because God never intended the law to save. God never intended the law to save. The law burdens. And that's its intent, to burden. Notice that uh, Paul, or Peter, sorry, in verse 10, calls the law a yoke. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? 
all those extras are yokes, you know, what they would put around the, the oxen to, to pull and carry. It was a, a load. It was a restriction. It was captivity. It was a weight. It doesn't make life easier. It doesn't make it better. It simply makes it harder. The law and the works don't free us. They enslave us. They burden us. They weigh us down. The freedom that we long for is not found in the law. It's not found in our works. The law removes hope. There is no hope in the law. Why is it a burden? Because it gives no hope. Peter even says here, why do you put a yoke on these disciples, on these Gentiles, when you know that the law was a burden to you? You can't even keep the law. Our forefathers who received the law, they couldn't keep the law. It was a burden and a turmoil to them. Why would you put it on them thinking it would find freedom? It makes no sense. The law, Paul tells us in Romans 3 verse 20, gives us the knowledge of sin. Verse 19, it tells us that have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Even in a small way, have you ever lied or coveted? then you are without hope. Any of those things make you without hope. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, even just one, is death. We are without God and without hope in this world. Why rely on the very thing that condemns us to save us? The law points us to Jesus. Romans 10 verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law end of the law for righteousness and to everyone who believes as paul continues to make his case in galatians chapter 3 verse 22 he says this but the scripture has confirmed all under sin that the promise by faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe but before faith came we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. But though it's not necessary, though the law is not necessary, that doesn't mean that the law is irrelevant Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, what do I need to do to be saved? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what the greatest commandment is. It comes down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he doesn't say, oh, the greatest law is to honor God and build no other idols to him. Or don't cheat or don't lie or don't covet. He says those two things, love God with absolutely everything you have and love people. That's what he boils the law down to. He sums it up in these two things. In Galatians chapter two, six, sorry, Galatians chapter six and verse two, Paul kind of boils it down to this, and he calls that the law of Christ. The law of Christ. He says in Romans six, what then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under the law? Certainly not. So does that mean because Christ is the end of the law and the law has no binding effect on me, does that mean I can just do whatever I want, live however I want because I've been forgiven? Don't be ridiculous. That's a stupid thing to think, he says. Grace does not mean license to sin. However, if you keep the first commandment, if you pursue Christ with all of your heart, with all of your mind, love him supremely, what is going to happen? You're not going to lie. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to covet. You're not going to, to have other gods before him because he is supreme above all. You love him. And the result of my love is I will follow what he, what he wants. I will obey. Love pursues Christ and lives for others. Part of the outcomes of this in the last few verses, verse 20 and 21, part of the outcome is an expression to live in love and fellowship with the others. So they say we're not going to bind on the Gentiles the need to keep the law, but we want to ask them to do something else. And he gives a list of a couple of things, and we'll consider these a little bit more next week in more detail. But they give a list of a couple of things saying, well, look, there are Jews all through the world. And every Sabbath, they're reading the law of Moses. We simply ask, we're not going to burden the Gentiles with the law. We simply ask that the Gentiles don't put a burden on us by flaunting it in front of our face. Can we live in mutual love and respect? We will not require the, the non-Jews to keep the law for salvation because it doesn't. But can you show a little bit of grace to us too? The Gentiles shouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jews, just as the Jews should not be a stumbling block to the Gentiles. Let's live to lift each other up, to encourage each other to be stronger in our faith, to live the law of Christ, to love God above all, and to love others. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else. No baptism. No works. No law. No filling of the Spirit. No penance. Nothing. Put whatever you want in there. I don't care what you put in there afterwards. It doesn't exist. Salvation is Jesus alone. Only Jesus. No amount of good you can do will gain you favor with God. Salvation is all of God. You don't need to do good deeds. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be a church member. You don't need to celebrate the Passover. None of that matters in reference to your salvation. You need to believe that Jesus the sinless Son of God died on the cross to pay for your sins. That sacrifice was perfectly accepted by the Father. And so Jesus rose from the dead on the third day to give life over death. Now he sits in heaven to intercede for his people, to intercede for those who have put their faith in him alone. You can't pay for your sin, so Jesus did it. 
And believing him, you will find forgiveness. Take off the weight of works. Find freedom in Jesus Christ. Believer, as I said, this is no small matter. This is no small matter. Life and death are at stake. People who are pursuing their salvation by what they do or by what they keep will find themselves rejected in the end. This is no small matter. Never, ever let people believe that it is okay to believe salvation is Jesus plus something else. It is not okay. Let them believe it put them in a dangerous place. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Let's pray. Moments like this, epic moments in Scripture. This is no small event in church history. The very nature of salvation is at stake. The very work of Christ. We thank you for the boldness and strength of men like Paul and Barnabas who were willing to show us the strength and the fortitude to fight to make sure that this truth is passed on to every generation. And Lord, for the many who have gone on before us, who have held this fight strong too, and may we not drop in that battle either. Let us with glory and grace and humility and joy preach Christ alone and see people freed from the bondage of the law and sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.